Before we dive into this episode of the podcast, I want to quickly address what's going on in the broader world around us this week. A significant and deadly global health emergency you know, has begun to directly impact breweries, beer events, uh, and individuals involved in the craft beer industry. The response from industry groups like the Brewers Association, who just announced the cancellation of the Craft Brewers Conference scheduled for next month, has underscored the severity of the situation, and, and we ourselves just yesterday moved our Minnesota Craft Beer Festival back from its scheduled date in April to uh, September 19th of this year in order to make sure everyone from attendees to brewery representatives, staff, and volunteers remain healthy and safe. The impact on breweries and the hospitality businesses that breweries depend on has the potential to be severe and long-lasting, even after the most dangerous phase of this epidemic has passed. And so we'll continue to look for opportunities to engage on this subject in meaningful and timely ways. For now, we hope everyone listening is engaging in healthy practices, looking out for the health and safety of themselves and those around them. Together, we can get through this. Now, on to this week's episode. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm in Portland, Oregon to this week and uh, sitting across the table from an award-winning brewer here at Breakside Brewery in Portland, Ben Edmonds, uh, brewmaster for Breakside Brewery. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me, Jamie. Looking forward to talking about a lot of things, uh, not just the IPAs that you've won <laughs> so, so many medals for and that I know uh, everyone is uh, excited to hear about on this episode. We are Absolutely going to talk about that, but uh, we're also going to delve into some of your mixed culture beer and some of your other approaches to beer beyond that. Uh, you're celebrating, about to celebrate your 10th anniversary this year? Yeah, we opened in May of 2010, so uh, we'll hit 10 years in just a few months. That's uh, quite a milestone. Yeah. Um, it's going to be a fun conversation. I can't wait to talk and drink beer. Um, first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and dedication to their customers' craft. G&D is committed to cold, whether you operate a brew pub or large-scale production brewery. They're big enough to produce and small enough to care. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game with their premium craft juice blends. Whether you're planning a passion fruit Kolsch, Concord Sour, Mango Lager, or other fruity brew, Old Orchard can supply you with consistent product at affordable prices. Their blends are packed with real fruit and natural flavors with no added sugar or other weird fillers you'd find in knockoff brands. With the rising demand for fruity seltzers and brews, the time is ripe to grow your relationship with the right juice supplier. Get your Old Orchard sample kit today with free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also, before we start talking, remember Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and an all-access exclusive merchandise item. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, support what we do right here, and join now. Ben. Talk to me about your brewing history in the normal format that we start this thing off with. How did you get here uh, as brewmaster for Breakside and uh, Breakside Brewery, and uh, you know making the beer that you do now? Right. So I started uh, like many people of my kind of generation of brewers as a home brewer. Um, I started home brewing in college a little bit, and then dabbled in, I guess, in college, and then eventually kind of caught the bug, as a lot of people did. I was living in this uh, small town in Colorado, 
after college, my first job out of college, and I was teaching high school, and uh, I it was a great little mountain town. You could go skiing, rock climbing, uh, mountaineering during the day, but at night there was nothing to do. It was you know dead town. Right, so right. homebrewing was a easy thing to uh, kind of get into, and that was what uh, my friends and I filled our time. Nobody with. brews in Colorado. I don't know what you're talking about. It, there, there was a <laughs> brew pub in this town in Leadville, Colorado. It's, I yeah. think it's gone through three or four iterations yeah. since uh, I moved there in 2004. So. Um, yeah, we, I think we probably produced about as much beer as the <laughs> brew pub that was there at the time okay. did. Uh, yeah, and so when I moved to Portland in uh, 2007, I kind of had it in the back of my mind that I might want to try and make a career change um, and make a go of it and try and make a career out of my passion yeah. uh, or my you know hobby, I suppose, and was very passionate about it, really loved craft beer, had gotten into craft beer a lot more right. in Colorado, uh, and... So when I moved out here, I quickly became enamored of the scene. Um, long story short is that I ended up enrolling at Siebel and had planned with a couple of friends to try and open our own place. Um, that I was going to be the beer guy, one of them was going to be the restaurant guy, the other was going to be the right. business guy. Turns out that those two guys, uh, while I was in brewing school, decided they really didn't like working with each other. And <laughs> so uh, that was uh, probably one of the best, most luckiest yeah. things that happened to me because uh, I finished brewing school and held up my end of the bargain, came back to Portland, and uh, a couple of different kind of opportunities arose around this, uh, all kind of close to each other. One was that I was offered a job brewing kind of as an assistant brewer over at Upright Brewing um, here sure, in sure. Portland, and I did that for a little bit. I also shortly thereafter met the guys who were planning to open Breakside, um, then kind of brew pub and planning that was going to be a nano brewery, right. you know, in a basement and start going from there. <laughs> right, um, right. And eventually, um, Breakside did open and I was offered the position of being the pub brewer when we first started there. Uh, I had brewed it up right then at that point for about six or eight months. Um, and I thought that, you know, between brewing school education and, uh, Run, working in a brew, another brewery that running a three barrel brew pub was going to be sure. easy and fun and totally manageable. And, you know, 10 years later, here we are. And uh, I'm not really sure what, there's a lot of things that happened in the interim there, but uh, yeah, I've been with Breakside now for 10 years. So you've kind of driven that beer program from, uh, from the very early days. Yeah. And it's a real credit, I think to, I mean, certainly to um, Scott Lawrence, who's now my business partner and, you know, the, the founder of Breakside. That sure. You know, he entered it. He enters it more from the hospitality side um, and wants high quality beer, high quality food, high quality customer experience. And he was not dogmatic and never has been about what we make. And I think that's really yeah. allowed for me and the other brewers at Breakside to have kind of carte blanche to innovate. And so now you're multiple locations. You're doing some significant scale production that gets out there into the world of distribution. Um, how large is the brewery right now overall? We're right around 30,000 barrels. Yeah, that's not so small anymore. No, so we far cry from a three barrel system. Yeah. <laughs> so, one of the things that puts you on the map are, are your hoppy beers. You know, it's, it's, um, we're on the West Coast. IPAs are, are incredibly popular. Um, you all have staked out some ground, uh, making particularly good versions of those. Walk me through that, like the, that early kind of ideation process as you were thinking about the kinds of IPAs you're going to make, and then let's kind of work through how they got to where they are now. Sure, because you know, none of these beers start as the things they are, you know, 
from that that first get-go. I mean, I guess some do, but for most brewers, it's a process of iteration, a process of refinement, a process of understanding, a process of understanding your equipment and the you know what you're making it on, and you know, and then also learning and understanding those ingredients as you do more and more of this and and get to uh, taste more and more of those impacts. Talk to me a little bit about that initial vision for the IPA and then how that has developed over the last decade. So in 2008, 2009, when we opened, uh, just before we opened, I would say that if you look back at that point in time, in terms of really progressive, aromatic, exciting IPAs, there was more coming out of California than there was in Oregon or Washington at the point. Uh, The highest quality stuff, in my mind, having lived in Colorado and been to GABF, uh, you know, of course, there's Russian River, and of course, there's Firestone. Right. Um, there's also, I think, the Pizza Port beers. So I think that for me, in my mind, I, I had going into brewing school and coming back, and as a home brewer, had this vision. That, you know, having been lucky enough to taste some of these, right? You know, top-notch West Coast IPAs in their heyday uh, was, I think, a really foundational thing. And so it's, it's aspirational, right? At that right. point, you say, I don't want to do anything less than that. Um, and they were more bitter, uh, for sure. sure. A lot of those beers were quite a bit, uh, very dank, very resinous, very bitter, very high, like much higher alcohol. You know, I think that still is the case in a lot of San Diego wet style West Coast IPAs. You start at that, you know, seven percent is kind of your basement, right? Um, and so for Breakside, the vision was always to make those beers to kind of take the best of those beers, but bring them down uh, a little bit to a more drinkable um, ABV level, right? And kind of a, a I don't know that it's really appropriate to call a six and a half percent beer sessionable, but you know, relative to a seven and a half percent beer, it is. So, so you can sell four of them instead of three. Sure, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how everyone in San Diego can drink those high alcohol beers yeah. and still, you know, function and, and surf so well and you know look so healthy. It's amazing. They started doing it before Uber existed too. Right. So yeah. I don't know. Um, anyhow, that was kind of where we were sh- the target right. that we were right. shooting for. Right, was this idea of a beer that was kind of more in the six to six and a half percent range, and that was pretty consistent with the other IPAs that were on in the yeah. Portland market at the time. Um, and so, taking a little bit of the kind of aromatics from from San Diego and from Northern California, a little bit more of the kind of malt uh, base, though not quite as much crystal malt as maybe some of the earlier IPAs. Had, yeah that there were, I think that was kind of where we started and we started working down that path, that direction. And Breaks at IPA was the first uh, IPA that we made. Um, to this day, it remains a Citrus Chinook uh, and Mosaic beer. When we first started brewing it, it was actually a Citrus Chinook. So that really did kind of hit its uh, kind of its hop schedule pretty early on. You were on the, the front end of that whole Citra train then. Well, you know, the irony of it was that we couldn't get Simcoe. I wanted to make a Simcoe Chinook beer, and this was we didn't have hop contracts, of course, when we first opened. So I wanted to make a Simcoe Chinook beer, and I couldn't get Simcoe, but I could get Citra on the spot market. Yeah, and that lasted for about a year (laughs) until everyone else figured it out. Yeah, and then there was probably a year or so where I mean we were really scraping the bottom of the barrel. I mean I think there were probably some batches of breaks at IPA that were like Fuggles and Northern Brewer, (laughs) you know. But finally, our hop contracts kicked in, and we were probably one of the smallest uh, brew pubs to have hop contracts. But we had Citra and Mosaic. Yeah. uh, In in you know abundance after that and so yeah citrus chinook became kind of the foundation of that beer um i didn't really ever think about it until this was never intentional but i think it certainly is reflected in my preference and also jacob leonard who's our director of brewing operations been with breakside for uh, nearly eight years now neither of us are big into like ganja aromatics yeah um and 
so I think that our although beers, that vibe is pretty pretty thick here in Oregon sure, and, and, and Washington for that matter. Yeah, and I mean I don't think it, it's not really a commentary on whether anyone on our staff you know enjoys or doesn't enjoy right. pot. It's more just like, do you want your IPAs to smell that way? Yeah, is that like a signature aromatic? And that was something we actually realized pretty quickly we didn't like. Okay, um, so I think that is something that differentiated our beers. Early on, we tried to. So we were working with hops in ways where we were looking for combinations that were more fruity, more tropical, less dank, resinous. Yeah. Now the Chinook thing is still something that I find a lot of Oregon brewers run with that brewers outside of the state don't seem to use quite as often. What do you find Chinook added to that mix? Chinook, when it's good, has a really distinctive um, ruby red grapefruit and sweet pine character. I think that some of the Chinook, I mean, not just from particular farms, but a lot of the Chinook being grown in Oregon and, frankly, in Yakima now, too, has that quality, the best Chinook does. It's a punchy hop, right? Yeah. It, uh, we've we've found over the years that you really have to keep either lower the amount of Chinook you're using and you'll still get a lot of bang for your buck, or if you want to have a Chinook forward beer, it really needs to be couched with some pretty high TG. Yeah. We actually do a, I like to call it a Northeast by Northwest kind of IPA. It's not New England IPA because it's not sweet. Um, but it's hazy and it's yeah. rich and it's a Chinook forward beer um, called Thirst Trap. And it's definitely kind of our stamp on a hybrid of the two styles, but it's not juicy at all. Yeah. It's not, you know, it's very uh, Chinook forward. But if you let that TG get too low in some Chinook beers, especially in Chinook heavy beers, yeah. I think that you get a lot of woodiness, okay. a lot of cedariness. Um, it's something that in Breaks at IPA, it's actually within our kind of senior panel is something we're very sensitive to uh, is you know, if if we feel like the TG is dropping or we're seeing a C, you know, we've, we'll move that TG back up. We're trying to always yeah. kind of balance residual sugar and Chinook character because the, the citra and the mosaic kind of take care of themselves in yeah. some ways, yeah. as long as you have good citra mosaic. That's an interesting way to, to think about how that gravity affects the expression of those hops. I think that's, you're, I think you're absolutely right. And I notice that even now with so many brewers bring hazy IPAs kind of pushing into that eight percent to mid eights range with double ipas um you know that extra bit of sweetness sells that juicy character and helps bring out that character of those hops as a brewer you want to be able to you know get that character out of any beer along the abv spectrum but it doesn't always work that way yeah i mean and with with all due respect to the brute ipa is a phenomenon i mean really in my mind the only interesting part of it from a novel part of it from a flavor profile point of view is is that it makes you th- makes me at least think about how different hops uh, present themselves in a very, very low sugar environment. You yeah. know, that's kind of the most interesting piece of it. Have you, uh, what have you found around that? Uh, are there specific hops that uh, you really have to go to that can find some of that juicier tropical character despite that uh, lack of residual sugar? To be honest, those beers haven't sold well enough for us, so we've really stopped <laughs> producing them. I think that's the entire market yeah, right now. Yeah. Um, Brewed IPA was the, the hottest trend that never never became anything. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll share some blame for uh, for writing about it and promoting <laughs> it. Uh, um, but, you know, yeah, you got to try. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, you mentioned pulling uh, caramel malt out of it as you do it, and that, that's certainly a, a trend that has been accelerating over the last, you know, five to seven years. Um, both for the oxidative reasons that you know pulling some of those malts out certainly helps stabilize these beers over the long run and reduce oxidation, but um, you know it also kind of amplifies this brightness, um, you know, to the to the hops character that uh, you know kind of differentiates from that older pale ale kind of approach that that did you know that people were really 
firm with. It was almost this new generation's break with that generation of the past. Uh, talk to me a little bit about you know how you envision this malt bill and how the malt and those hops work together as a result of it. So when we first started making Breaks at IPA in 2000, in, I want to say the very first batch was probably end of 2010 or beginning of 2011. Um, it was C40 Munich, two row, and I believe some carapils. And the C40 was probably about 8% of the, the grist at the time. Fast forward 10 years, and there's no C40 in the beer, but there is a good bit of C20. And for a long, long time, including the times when it won at GABF, the yeah. beer was had C40, C20, Munich, and, and two row. Um, and now it is just Munich, two row, and C20. So we do we do actually keep some crystal malt in there. Yeah. Um, though I would don't think there's a single West Coast or East Coast kind of hot forward beer that we make at this point where there's anything darker than a 20 Lovabond malt. Is that just for color reasons or flavor reasons or for functional reasons? All of the above. I think okay. that it adds a little bit of crystal malt does add a really pleasant hue to a lot of these beers. Um, it takes it from potentially being, especially if you're talking about a hazy beer, I think goes from that kind of chicken stock-like uh, <laughs> character that you risk. Right, and, that's, right. and that's fine. I mean, we have a beer across the table there that has uh, you know, effectively that hue. But I think a little bit sure. of an orange hue, a copper hue is really pleasant. Structurally, I think it does add some non-fermentability, um, yeah. and that's an important piece of these beers, depending on how what sort of hop load you're trying to include in there, what types of hops. Again, you know, if you're trying to uh, include some of the Chinook, it, right. you know, you get all the best of Chinook, but you get the roughest parts too. So yeah. you have to work with that and find ways to counteract it. Um, what do you find is that kind of ideal final gravity spot for these? It really varies for us. I would say and we're that, talking about West Coast. Yeah, if, we're, ta style if IPAs. we're talking about West Coast IPAs that are in the, in the kind of the breakside sweet spot of like the six yeah. to six four range, typically we're between like two three and two seven. Okay. Yeah, we're not. Uh, we we don't go below two, um, or really try and not ever go below two. Yeah. Um, just as we plan recipes, that we those beers tend to be too dry, too thin. Um, you know, if we were making seven percent. IPAs, kind of like, you know, uh, Evan Price was on the show recently and talked right. about this with Green Cheek, where it's, you know, he's getting those, those beers very dry, or like um, the guys at Comrade doing the same thing. They make very dry beers. Right. I think that we would have to just compose the beer differently. So a lot of it, yeah. I don't think there's it's necessarily a right answer. Sure, But sure. for us, the way that we do some other things in terms of water profile, in terms of malt composition, in terms of hop loads... I think that for us, that two two to two seven is that sweet spot. Yeah, I never want anyone to give me a pronouncement about how all things should be. All I ever want is to know how you do it. Yeah. You know, and I think that everyone is just trying to find that perspective. It's not that they want to do the same thing. It's just interesting to hear, you know, how you create that kind of balance and what you do. Um, you know, from that malt perspective, you mentioned two row Munich. Are there some uh, particular varieties that you like more than others that kind of add some of that character that helps you know hold that beer up? Our silo mm -hmm. malt is Great Western two row. That's pretty yeah. much the foundational malt that we use in all of our West Coast beers. Um, we're you know they malt it just across the river here in yeah. Vancouver, Washington. It's a really clean, neutral base malt, uh, moderately high protein, but not over the top. Yeah. Um, so a really clean, easy, easy to use and uh, friendly base malt. As far as Munichs go, we mix it up. We like Weirman Munich One quite a bit. Uh, we use a lot of Great Western Munich malt. Uh, Baird's Munich we bring in by the container load and use that as kind of the uh, only malt other than Two Row and Wanderlust. Okay. Um, so there's a handful of other, and we'll use Simpsons Munich, yeah. which if I recall right is a little bit darker. 
Um, but those are kind of maybe the four that we rotate through the most. There, there are some other ones that you'll see in our recipes from time to time. Sure, sure. Because you're a brewer and you like to have fun and try some new things here and there. We try and we try and streamline, but you yeah. know, the, there's always a stray bag of something here or there in the warehouse. Yeah. Speaking of streamlining, talk to me a little bit about yeast. Are you all public about uh, you know the yeast strain that you use in your West Coast? Yeah, IPAs? It's, it's a zero zero one beer. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's just some straight. Yeah. Okay. Um, when you talk about water treatment, uh, you know, I mean, there are certainly trying to kind of heighten that, uh, you know, that, that sharpness and definition in it. Um, is there anything special to what you do about that? I don't think there's anything in, <laughs> in particular that's like that unique yeah. that we do. I mean, we moderately burtonize the water. Yeah. As far as sulfate to chloride ratios go, you know, two to one to five to one is kind yeah. of our sweet spot. I don't think it really changes hop flavor at all or, you know, it doesn't do much to enhance hop aroma. I do think it promotes drinkability. Yeah. Um, I know that some people really prefer a chloride forward beer. That's on the, our West Coast IPAs. That's just not how we roll. Right. Um, and for us, just a little bit of that and a little more gypsum or a little bit more sulfate, I should really say, to chloride is, is important. We also, it's interesting, you know, we have two pubs in Portland and one down our production breweries in Milwaukee, Oregon, which is the first yeah. suburb south of town. And that's on a different uh, municipal water supply. Okay. So one when we built this brew pub that we're sitting in, which is our uh, Slab Town pub, which is kind of our hop experiment, our hop lab, okay. as we call it sometimes, we started making beers here and realized, even though we were burtonizing for gypsum, uh, for sorry, for sulfate and chloride, that we were missing something. The beers were coming out a little bit soft and... You know, Portland water really has very little salt in it and mineral content in it at all. Our water down in um, Milwaukee is quite high in uh, bicarbonate. It's quite hard water, Mm -hmm. alkaline water. And so we, just as a matter of course, to try and flavor match, started adding a little bit more uh, chalk into our beer here. And I think that's become part of our flavor profile here now, too, that we really like. Mainly to flavor match between R&D recipes and... um, production recipes but i would suggest to anyone who hasn't tried it before that if see what adding yeah. a little bit of calcium carbonate in, into your uh, hoppy beers can do on your west coast ipas i'm gonna talk I, the big next big question is more of a, a theoretical and an abstract question and that's how you go from making these beers to dialing in beers that have such an impact in kind of competition. But before we get to that question, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear and now a special message from pabst brewing company out of the west a storm surprised swept down on captain pabst that mariner and gentleman his actions swift and fast he sailed the seabird against the throws routing twain wind and fear he took haste to protect his kin but the port was far from near. Pabst's intuition proved him right and bore a friendly coast. The mighty seabird crashed aground. And to that, we raise a toast. For while the seabird indeed was lost, safe were kin and crew. And without this mighty ship to steer, Captain Pabst began to brew. 
Captain Pabst, Seabird IPA, exclusively available in Wisconsin and Chicago. So talk to me about this, uh, the kind of the je ne sais quoi, the, that kind of um, uh, the element that doesn't get accounted for in recipes and even in uh, that thing that takes a beer from being a good solid seller to being that thing that gets elevated as a paragon of IPA in the world of brewing. When we, when we talk about beers that we enter in competition and this, it doesn't just apply to our IPAs, but I think about the thing that I like about the, I like about competition um, is that as I think I've learned over time that, the beers that win, the beers that advance, are the beers that are the most pleasant. And, you know, they're the most pleasant to a very discriminating group of judges. As someone who judges, you know, GABF, other competitions, I see it as, you know, within the purview of the style guidelines, there's going to be 12 beers in front of us. We're, obviously, we can't go rogue and ignore the guidelines, but we're going to find that the beers that are going to advance are the ones that are the most pleasant to the most people. And if you can shave your beers in ways that are optimizing for being the most pleasant, they're going to do well. And obviously, there's a lot more to it than that. But I think that's fundamentally our philosophy on this. Like, is this pleasant to everyone at our table? And we nitpick our beers the most, you know, in our own sensory team, our own uh, kind of seniors sensory panel every week. So that's but we always come back to that question, you know. You and I might think this recipe is great, it's dialed in, but if we have our QA manager who's over here saying, you know, this bitterness is a little bit rough to me, it's not necessarily about trying to just like alter the recipe altogether, but it's like, okay, what can we shave? What can we do to make this a little bit more pleasant over for this person here and that person there? And I think that we're kind of, you know, I suppose a cynic could hear that and think that that means you're kind of taking the character out of a beer, you're taking kind of the individual like imprint you know imprint of the brewer's intent out of it but i don't think that's the case we're just trying to make people your goal is to make beer that pe- makes wanna, people happy yeah right? make people I mean, want to drink and yeah. that they enjoy so i think that that's but i think that that right. is really in, what i enjoy about both getting feedback from competitions and entering competitions and when we succeed in them i think it's because we've taken that to heart and try and just simply take any beer once it's been created and then ask that question again and again okay this is a good beer this is coming along how can it be more pleasant at the same time, and you know, there is still that balance that you know you're talking about a lot of beers in any given flight, and it's not just hitting a lowest common denominator for the most unoffensive thing. There also has to be a character that stands out as interesting, uh, and engaging, and something that kind of captivates the judges because you know, yes, they are not looking for the small things that might knock something out of, of a round, but they're also wanting to push something forward that has something to say and that somehow accomplishes this ideal of the thing you know and so you're while you're shaving off you're also trying to kind of push this middle character of something up through the middle and what is that is that the- i'm you know i i don't I, I don't know there's a single thing but i'm just curious uh you know from your perspective what does that thing become Again, I go back to pleasure. I go back to just the simple enjoyment of of the beer in in so many ways. You know, once you know that you're kind of within the framework of a given style, it's very, and I think you're kind of playing in this sweet spot of like, how do you, how do you just make it more pleasant? Um, And the greatest 
compliment I think that at this point in my career I can give to another brewer is that like someone's beer is so good that it makes me stop thinking about beer. Yeah. Right. That I just just want to enjoy it. Sure. Uh, so if you can, you know, I think that's the quest. That's the quest. I don't know. We we changed our approach to getting there each time. I suppose. Um, sometimes it's water profile. Sometimes it's hop level. Sometimes it's you know identifying issues in fermentation. But I I think that. It's just a philosophical quest is more than it is about kind yeah. of having a, a secret like technique or anything like that. Sure, sure. I mean, I, to be fair, though, I will say, I mean, packaging is number one. Yeah. You have to have your beer has to show up on the table and be tasting fresh. You know, right. oxidation is the um, greatest enemy of otherwise good beers. But it's going to sit there in a chilled warehouse for a month after it's packaged, you know, yeah. before it gets judged. Yep. So, you know, I think that if, if that is the first thing you have to be able to address. But once you've addressed that, you know, then it, then you're really allowed, you know, it's really just about this quality of the beer in front of you. Does that impact the way that you, you know, kind of does, I mean, even thinking about hops, you know, there are certain hops combinations that you can design and processes that you push towards that, that'll taste great the week you release that beer. And there are some, you know, ways of brewing where you're thinking about the way that's going to express four weeks down the line when it all kind of comes together. Uh, and for a brewery that packages beer and puts it out into retail distribution, thinking about it coming together down the line after it's out of a, of a you know distributor's warehouse and is sitting on a shelf and actually gets bought by someone, I mean, that's not a bad thing. It's, it, it's a smart thing to think about um, you know, building a beer that will come together in the time frame, you know, that it typically takes to get to a consumer. And that time frame does tend to get um, properly mapped or uh, similarly mapped uh, for these kinds of competition entries. Uh, how do you think about that kind of, uh, you know, function? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, we're a packaging brewery, right? And it would be silly for us if we didn't think about when were our consumers or when's our average consumer finding and having this beer yeah you know and i remember when we were first starting into production um first packaging our beer for anything other than draft we were uh going to um i was going to the supermarket and i would just look at date codes and see okay how long is it actually taking to get to consumers and we came laser focused on okay this beer is the average portland portlander who's drinking breaks at IPA or Wanda's is getting that at 25 days. Yeah. You know, let's let's not worry about the first 20 days. If it tastes good in that time, it's great. If it tastes like right. crap in that time, that's okay too. I mean, ideally it doesn't, yeah. but like, yeah. you know, we want it to peak. We want it to be hitting that sweet spot for that consumer who's getting in between day 20 and day 40. And that really is the utmost concern to us. I wouldn't, I half jokingly say, like, I don't care what the beer tastes like at 15 days or if you drink one of our beers that quickly, you know, it does, you're kind of the anomaly but I do think that um, production breweries should think about pipeline in that way. Pipeline and quality is intertwined in that way. Is there a piece beyond simply reducing dissolved oxygen in the beer that helps you accomplish that? Was there? Did you adjust hops in any way? Did you adjust any other components of, of your or your process or recipe? Sure, there are certainly some hops that I think hang on longer than others that seem to have a a, a good shelf life in yeah. terms of kind of their their. Um, impact right you know centennial is an interesting hop because that seems to just last and last and last mm. and last and a beer that you know might sit on a store shelf warm you open it and it still smells like centennial <laughs> if it's got a good right, amount right. of centennial in it um and maybe it doesn't smell like the most beautiful perfect fresh centennial that you had in that 20-day beer that had been cold, stored cold but it smells more like hops than 
some other beers that were treated the same that don't have that same hop combination yeah. and have the same, you know, you control for all the other variables. I do think Chinook does the same thing. I think some of the older school hops actually hang on really nicely. Uh, fortunately, I think that Citroen Mosaic, you know, when handled well, I mean, sure. most hops when handled well, I think that people are using these days hang on well. Uh, there are some that I personally feel like kind of disappear and drop off. Yeah. Um, we've been having a lot of issues with El Dorado as of late mm. where it smells so wonderful for the first 20 days and then it's just kind of absent after yeah. that. It's not bad. It's just like, where'd it go? I've always felt the same way about Azaka. Um, yeah. Two hops that, you know, at the table, they smell great. They smell great in the wort. They smell great in, in the, the, pe- the bag of pellets smells great. The wort smells great. The beer smells great initially. And then 25 days later, you're kind of wanting for that hop. So those become pub brew only uh, or draft only, uh, you know, in your local spot uh, kind of beers. Well, see, see, I I, maybe it's just the way we brew, but I thought that we would figure out when we opened a brew pub that was supposed to be hop focused how to make our hoppy beers taste better at day one, but we don't. I mean, they still taste better. (laughs) I swear, they always taste better at day fifteen, day twenty. And you know, we're pretty we're pretty old school in our selling practices. We don't filter centrifuge, but we do. Everything goes, you know, gets transferred. Everything's treated in a bright tank. Everything gets fined, yeah. and so even our hazy beers do. And um, yeah, so I, I don't know. Despite trying to make our beers be kind of better, younger, we've been unable to do that. But fortunately, the flip side, you know, we've I think made our beers last longer, better. Makes sense. Let's talk about um, one of the interesting things I think you have, and we're, we're drinking Wanderlust IPA now. Um, you have two almost flagship IPAs now that are pushed out there into yeah. production um, with different characters to each. Yeah. How did you envision, you know, now that you had Breakside IPA and you've won medals for it, um, this other IPA that was somehow important enough to you and a different enough flavor profile to create a different idea of the beer? How did you envision that one and then start pushing this one forward? Yeah, well, historically, uh, Wanderlust actually came online before Breakside IPA had ever really taken off. Okay. Um, we... We're, it was 2013, and we had limited hop contracts, and we couldn't... Bricks IPA was doing well, but we, there was a certain amount that we... Only a certain amount of IPA that we could produce that year. Um, it was, certainly was not selling like hotcakes at the time. It was probably not even in the top five or six wow. uh, IPAs in our distributor's book. Uh, we were actually selling much more Pilsner at the time, huh. out of production, draft Pilsner, and 22s of Pilsner. And... So, but at the same time, we wanted to go into the Seattle market. We wanted to do something other than Oregon, um, just add some additional territory to try and build up the brand and and the name of the um, kind of notoriety of the brewery. And we came up with the idea to just add a second IPA because we couldn't make any more breaks at IPA with the given our hop contracts yeah, at that right, point. So right. it was just kind of a cap. Uh, and so Wanderlust was developed out of that effort. Um, oddly enough, we had a lot of mosaic that we weren't using at the time because we just didn't have a home for it yet. We had contracted because it, it smelled awesome at some CBC way back when. And I was <laughs> fortunately <laughs> chased our uh, sales rep down in the hallway and said, I want to sign a contract for as much of that as I can get. And we weren't using it. So uh, Wanderlust uh, came, was born from that um, idea. And it really is... I think if Breakside IPA, at least in its earliest iteration, maybe less so now, was kind of cut from a little bit of that backward-looking, you know, late aughts-type IPA, Wanderlust, I think, in a lot of ways, was kind of the first, one of the first Oregon IPAs that moved kind of forward in really getting rid of all the crystal malt, being a mosaic-forward IPA. Um, It's mosaic, Amarillo, 
There's a little bit of Summit in there, which we tell people that, and they think we're crazy, but there is Summit in that beer. Uh, there's a lot of Cascade in that beer still, too, huh. um, and a little bit of Simcoe as well. But it's it's always been kind of a mosaic forward beer. I think there's something to that kind of use of classic hops that makes them feel familiar while you're still pushing forward. Um, you know, is, is there a, another functional reason outside of that to, to kind of tap into some of those like Cascade? I agree that it's anchoring the beer in familiarity. Jacob Leonard, again, our director of brewing ops, he always likes to talk about it as kind of the just classic flavors or this base that you can riff off of. Yeah. And that when you start using beers, you know, and that that sometimes when you make IPAs that, or hoppy beers that are, you know, all Southern Hemisphere or all Citra Mosaic, and maybe that's different, you know, now, maybe Citra Mosaic and Simcoe right, are the right. new holy trinity, right, uh, of, of hops. So they are classic enough. But like, for a long time there, if you didn't have Cascade or if you didn't have something like a little bit more sea hop old school, it just didn't quite taste like IPA still. So we've always used those hops because um, I do think they anchor the beer in something very classic and very identifiable. It's like this warm blanket that just, you know, wraps around you and makes you feel like this is the way it's supposed to be. But I think, you know, even we're even watching it happen on the hazy IPA side where some of the more interesting brewers of hazy IPAs are starting to tap into, you know, things like noble hops and and English hops to add some interesting characters and finding new ways to use those that also feels familiar, but also slightly herbal or, you know, floral, but having those characters kind of complement this expected kind of citra mosaic, um, uh, citra galaxy kind of thing. Uh, at the end of the day, like, you know, to keep it interesting, you've got to do something different. You know, if, if everyone's making the same Citra Mosaic IPA and on the hazy side, I mean, you know, it gets pretty boring pretty quickly. Yeah, and it seemed to me, at least from the outside, that a lot of uh, brewers who focus a lot on hazy beers tend to kind of discount or uh, not really consider a lot of classic sea hops um, that, you know, they're just not interested in using them, so it's not yeah. surprising to hear that you know you see people wanting to go to European varietals um, potentially as a, as an alternative because there is only so much you can do with the same set of four or five hops. Sure, sure. Um, you know, we had Chris Betts from or uh, Transient Arts Nails talking about Michigan Chinook and his hazy IPAs. Same kind of thing, like finding interesting ways of creating different kinds of character out of the things that most people may not be looking at for that kind of thing. There are some, some interesting approaches. Let's talk a little bit about your approach to Hazy IPA, though. Um, you make a, a bunch of these because, obviously, people like to drink these in addition to your West Coast yeah. IPAs. Um, talk to me a little bit about that kind of pivot and that addition to your portfolio and uh, how you stake out a kind of unique territory that feels like breakside in this world of Hazy IPA. Sure. We originally started when we first kind of went down the path of, of really diving into Hazy IPA, I think the moment that it clicked for me to understand what we could do is uh, having this beer from Sun River Brewing Company out of Bend, or out of Sun River, Oregon, actually, just south of Bend. They had made a uh, what they called an India Wheat Ale. Uh, and it was a very, it kind of was like a hybrid American Hefeweizen, American IPA. And up until that point, a lot of the New England IPAs I had had, and I'd had a, a good number of them were, you know, uh, a lot of them I felt like had replaced traditional bitterness with a bizarre astringency. Um, oftentimes there were a lot of yeast characteristics that I was not that uh, into. Right. Um, and I, I, at first did not find those beers pleasant at all. Um, and I think that 
brewers across the country have come a long, long way with those beers, sure, for sure. sure, but, sure. but when, you know, the thing that convinced me that there was some, something different and something interesting to do was to having the Sun River beer. And so that was kind of the, the inspirational beer. And, and I remember taking that back to our team and talking about that beer. It's like, what if, you know, in, you know, if we thought about Hazy IPA as the next iteration of American Hefeweizen, um, if Robin Kurt Widmer were to brew Widmer Hefeweizen for the first time in, you know, 2016 and not in 1985 or 1986, what would they have brewed? And it probably yeah. would have been something that was like Hefeweizen, but very heavily dry hopped with citron mosaic, right? Right. And so that's kind of where we started. And I actually think to this day that if you basically do that formula where you make a good American, a kind of a stronger version of American wheat beer with a lot of wheat and use a, a good healthy dry hop, sure, you can end sure. up with a pretty decent, decent uh, attack on that style. Um, and you can almost look at, I mean, uh, in some ways, I think that like um, Three Floyd's Gumball Head absolutely. Beer was one of these kind of progenitors of this entire style that, you know, like think about that beer back in the day that kind of used some of these new hops, but also kind of heightened that with the, the kind of, you know, uh, yeast ester profile and that kind of banana highlighting these kind of tropical fruit notes. And absolutely. Yeah, sure. And as we have advanced in our kind of. Uh, production of those beers and you know understanding the beers tasting other people's versions then our thinking on the whole style has definitely evolved um, fortunately I think there's also a lot of really awesome research that's been done on you know both in hop science and uh, on these beers in particular that has motivated us to keep refining them um, and so you know what we're really interested in now is to, is kind of looking at like the composition of a hazy beer as just completely different from a West Coast IPA. Huh. And, you know, it's not necessarily about bitterness and it's not necessarily about softness and not just about yeast profile, but viewing kind of the haze itself as a carrier of different hop compounds that you can't get in a West Coast IPA, that you're fundamentally getting two different kind of sets of flavors. And, you know, there are, as I mentioned before, some hazy IPAs that we make that I would consider more West Coast in the sense that the way the hops present are this more pellety, it's more West Coasty, and it's less of these kind of, um, I don't, you know, the, I think the term biotransformation gets bandied out about a lot, but like, yeah. you know, biotransformative compounds or some of the esters and some of the, uh, some of the, the various compounds you can get from using hops in a different way and some of the component parts of hops that are carrying through in hazy IPAs. Are there some particular things that you think you've uh, you've picked up on over the last year of brewing these kinds of things that uh, you may, may have been counterintuitive or may have kind of caught you off guard? I think a lot of it is more about what doesn't work in those beers. Okay, fair enough. And trying to, uh, trying to identify how to maximize kind of the perception again of, of like a juiciness or a yeah. sweetness like as opposed to a kind of pellety more uh west coast style yeah uh is that what you're what the folks here are drinking them want i mean they they want that you know or is there space in that uh, you know talk to me a little bit about how you build that kind of west coasty character into some hazy ipas a lot of it i think is is just simple well you can start with bitterness let's start yeah. there right i mean i think just people in portland still do like bitter you know more bitterness sure. than i think you see elsewhere in the country yeah. um our customers want a beer with a little bit of a firm uh, bitterness and part of this you know it's the home of northwest ipa and the, you have a lot of customers who for 20 30 plus years have been drinking right. these beers this way 
So our, I mean, Briggs IPA and Wanderlust, as well as Stay West and Rainbows and Unicorns, which are all West Coast IPAs, all outsell our top hazy IPA. Um, and I think that if you went around town, I don't, I, other than maybe Great Notion, you know, who really just focuses sure. exclusively on sure. those beers, I don't think you're going to find anyone in Portland who's not selling more West Coast IPA than hazy IPA right now. Yeah. Um, but yeah, getting back to the composition question, I think... So it's not like West Coast IPA is back. It never left. Yeah, it never... I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think it's a sign of a mature market here. Sure, is that, sure. Uh, you know, everyone's made the, made hazy IPAs. They're widely available. And you don't see people like going... At, it's not like there's a complete rejection of, of the past yeah, or of yeah. people enjoyed their IPAs here enough to want to keep drinking them. Yeah. And that's true throughout Oregon. Um. And so staking out, even when you do hazy IPAs, staking out some of that kind of West Coast and Breakside feel, are there uh, you know, some specific ways that you combine hops to kind of pull that in and make them your thing outside of this kind of sweeter, fruitier, juicier thing that seems to be most uh, East Coast dominated? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing you can do is you can lower your TG and you can raise your bitterness a little bit while yeah. still maintaining. What, do you, what would you shoot for in bitterness or those kind of things? I mean, you might go, like, let's take a, two beers that we make, for example, um, What Rough Beast, which is our kind of flagship hazy IPA. Uh, that beer, I want to say, is about 48 BUs okay. and is about 6.7%. Uh, with the TG in the mid threes, right? Um, I mid think threes, that's super dry for, for a hazy for IPA. that style, yeah. yeah. Uh, and but like thirst trap, for example, is even a little bit drier than that, down in the high twos. And that is, if you push those BUs up, you know, that's again that Chinook forward hazy. You know, that's probably in the fifties. So by all accounts, pretty low for a IPA, right? Um, but for a hazy IPA, quite high so you get this kind of interesting interaction you get all the richness in the mouthfeel you get a lot of different the compounds that you would not necessarily be able to get just in a west coast ipa but the bitterness and the dryness yeah. on the back end is very west coast again you can play with water profile too sure. you go a little bit you know you can make a hazy ipa with some added uh, skewing your sulfate to chloride a little bit towards sulfate you don't right. have to just favor chloride in those beers and you can create the perception of kind of more snappiness more drinkability yeah. while still getting some of the positives um in mouthfeel yeah um, are there any other trends that you're, you're finding in the uh, in the world of IPA before we shift gears here? Yeah, there's. I mean, I'm fascinated by some new hops that are in the marketplace right now. I'm really interested in the resurgence of pale ale. We seem to be able to sell a good bit of pale really? ale. I hope that that's something that continues. Um, is this you know caramel malt forward pale ale like the old days, or is this some no, new iteration? Of, no, no, I would ale. call these these are new 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 West Coast pales. <laughs> okay, yeah. Is it just the lower uh, the yeah, lower ABV and uh, you know greater like more sessionability ability to drink more of them, or is it uh, or is this part of the health craze where people are looking for lower calorie beers? I don't know that I have that much insight into what the <laughs> you know impetus is, but sure, yeah, we sure. be able to. I mean, you know, these are not as heavily dry hopped, but still huh. pretty healthily dry hopped beers, and they're not as light or low alcohol as session IPAs. Um, but again, you know, they're not that different either. I think it just right. in general, it's like lower alcohol hoppy beers hop forward beers that people seem to be excited about yeah in a way that for a little while they weren't interesting and um, it's exciting to see that come back because it's something that definitely should be there in that kind of pantheon of beers uh, you mentioned uh your pilsner being yeah. one of your top sellers and you've got a bottle of it here and so 
Uh, obviously, the lager trend is something that has seemed to be uh, hitting pretty hard over the last two years. Mm-hmm. Um, and this time, I think it's actually a real thing where people are actually buying these. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, and obviously, if that was a top seller that many years ago, it's all it's been something that's always sold for you. Talk to me a little bit about um, your approach to to brewing a pilsner. Yeah, so our pilsner is a German style pils. Um, that said, we you do what I would call kind of a more American hop uh, hop schedule with it. Okay. It's not dry hopped, um, but it is a kind of sixty minute like start of boil, ten minute before end of boil, and a whirlpool edition, as opposed to say a more traditional German of like a start of boil. 30 minutes before end of boil and 15 minutes before end of boil. And we right. actually did a side-by-side years ago with our staff where we did two batches and, you know, kind of everyone just preferred the American more, you know, yeah. uh, American one, which interestingly has made it probably less of a competition beer in that <laughs> sense. Um, but everyone really loves it. So we, we uh, it's just our Pilsner. It's kind of a German contemporary American Pilsner hybrid, but it's all Harrisbrooker, Liberty, and, or sorry, majority Harrisbrooker. Go to the Liberty uh, which is an organ-grown um, kind of American noble and uh, some Hallertown Middle Fru in there. Uh, 100% Pilsner malt. It's naturally carbonated. We spooned it uh, about halfway through fermentation. Um, we ferment in 120-barrel tanks predominantly. We occasionally do 60-barrel batches. But uh, because of that tank geometry, there are some considerations as far as what temperature we have to be at to spoon, doing diacetyl rises, some production considerations. So we typically go in at 48 degrees, um, ferment at 50 degrees and then we'll do a vdk rise about 50 percent of the way through fermentation to 57 and then we're spooning uh just after that and usually that gets us to the the beers to about two four in 120 barrel tanks or two two is probably closer um we've been trying some techniques to try and get that a little higher to get full carbonation but then we just top up on in the bright tank yeah um, any techniques that you're using on the kind of mash side in order to you know build some character? You're not decocting. Uh... No, our German pills not decocted. Uh, we do a step mash on everything, um, okay, okay. but yeah, we step from kind of a yeah. a uh, beta amylase rest up all the way through mash out. Is there a particular Pilsner malt that you find yourself attracted to? Um, we use Weirman pills predominantly. There's their their classic German pills. Yeah. that's the base for our uh, our pills our breakside Pilsner, but. As far as other ones would go, I mean, we'll use the Vireman Bohemian Pilsner. Um, we'll use the Canada Malting Superior Pils, another one that we're really big fans of. So we'll mix those in for pub beers, and a lot of the pub loggers uh, use those malts just to kind of mix it up. Yeah. Um, you know, staking out a territory in Pilsner is kind of a tough thing to do. I mean, there was a, a recent, uh, uh, I think it was a hard times uh, joke story uh, that went out about you know, guy starts a brewery to sell nine dollar and fifty uh, uh, cent pilsners. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, t- talk to me about how you make a beer like that compelling to a, a craft beer uh, consumer. That's a great question. You know, fortunately for us, pilsner as a category is pretty accessible to our and, and meaningful yeah. to our customers here. I know that elsewhere in the country that isn't always the case. But we were lucky that you know there was enough recognition of that as a craft style, even in 2013 when we started making it yeah. uh, as a production beer, that it sold you know several thousand barrels per year wow. uh, right from the get-go. As far as kind of uniqueness of any pils, I mean, it's, it is a more, I think Pilsner is a much more uh, wide-ranging style than a lot of people think. You know, you have your more austere and kind of lean versions. I think of the Freem Pils, you know, made just up the road in Hood River. 
it's very lean, it's very dry, it's very, uh, again, austere is kind of the word that I think sure, of. And then you sure. have much more robust ones, even within the spectrum of German pils- Pilsner, right. where you get a little bit more doughiness, a little bit more sweetness, a little bit lower bitterness. I mean, I was in Germany last year, and Augustiner Pils actually surprised me by how non-bitter it was. Yeah. Um, and this was after drinking lots and lots of Hellas, it still seemed not that bitter. Sure, sure. So, And I, even within Germany itself, there, there are very significant differences in the bitterness, depending on where you are. The bitterness, and, yeah. the uh, aroma intensity, the um, flavor hop contribution. So, you know, I think that we try to make a, 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 a Pilsner that is hop forward, yeah. um, that's consistent with kind of our West Coast, you know, American craft roots. Right, right. But still plant it firmly in Germany by using uh, German malts and German hops with the exception of that Liberty. But that really, I mean, Liberty is about as German you get from an American hop. So do you call it a German style pills or do you call it an American style pills? How, what, how do you define that? We, the label says old world with a modern twist. Uh, that's our... That sounds like a nice uh, way to describe it. Yeah. I mean, to be honest, it's not really a beer that we enter in um, competition anymore precisely for that reason. You know, we... I sort of recognize that it, it is a yeah. tweener beer. It doesn't really fit either style. But if someone had to ask, I would describe it as a German pills compared to, and it certainly isn't a pre-pro American pills, and it certainly right, is not right. a Czech pills. It seems like we have to put it into one of those buckets, and uh, that doesn't seem to be a, a predominant kind of American or contemporary or modern pills category that uh, people want to put their beers into yet here. Or if it is, they when you say contemporary American pills, and I think people are expecting it to be with you know made with. A, a citra pills yeah exactly so Highland Park Timbo pills exactly or, something like that. or dry hopped right I mean right, you right. know and so this is a non dry hopped pilsner so it, it kind of yeah. doesn't quite fit into any of those those categories that easily there's kind of a soft fragrant and you know, like floral fruitiness you know to it that's very subtle but but very endearing and yeah. makes it kind of you know enjoyable to drink with a character that you're right is not as austere as uh yeah, I mean, again, this is again in in kind of the breakside way. We keep the TG up a little bit. Uh, I think this finishes at two five. Yeah, um, and the BUs are only about twenty twenty six. We've got some other beers here on the table that I know uh, you'd love to talk about. Sure. Uh, you know, yeah. you, you, you certainly get typecast as a as a hoppy beer brewer, but that is not the extent of the beers that you brew. Um, talk to me a little bit about the kind of mixed culture beers and uh, you know that kind of side of the breakside program. So we do a wide range of mixed culture and sour beers. Um, our, you know, we make a seasonal kettle sour called Passion Fruit Sour that's been a huge hit for us over the last, gosh, seven or eight years now. We continues continues to do great every summer, and we've also long done a number of different mixed culture wood beers. Uh, with what we do now uh, is kind of a series of six beers released every year. We just call them the Breakside Sour series, and. They're all cuvee style, so we don't do project-based brewing on it. It's everything is kind of, we have one or two wort streams. Everything goes into individual casks. We don't have any fooders, but it's 100% wood fermented, and we don't inoculate the wort. We don't go through a cool ship, so I don't really call it spontaneous brewing, but it's, you know, we're really depending on the resident resident cultures within the the barrels to take over. And so over time, right, as we select and refill, we're always selecting for the barrels that we enjoy the most that we think make the most interesting blends and so that kind of narrows i think it has created kind of a house character for for us over time um, or a dominant house culture and we participated in a study a year or so ago to kind of sequence what the different microorganisms in that culture are and interestingly our culture is very i i didn't expect this but it's very pdo heavy huh um 
I thought that we would be predominantly Brett and uh, very, very low sack with medium PDO and lacto. We were actually quite PDO heavy, followed by uh, a lot of Brett and then not very much lacto or very much uh, sack. Interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's, you know, if you taste through these beers, part of this is the blending and part of this is just the culture is that there's not a ton of kind of traditional Brett character, right? We huh. don't, we, and I think part of that is also our panel's preference. Okay. Internally, we have a few folks who are very, very sensitive to phenols and sensitive to kind of some of the more feral and barnyardy type characteristics. And so the Brett characters that we select for tend to be a little bit gentler, softer, fruitier. Um, and I think that plays out in these beers. But the base uh, kind of wort is kind of lambic inspired, turbid mash wort. We're uh, doing a full turbid mash on these. As much as we can with okay. a, you know, okay. on a 30 barrel brew house. But it's a three-hour boil uh, with a huge portion of unmalted wheat. Um, it's all aged hops. Yeah. And then, like I said, straight into the, uh, well, we go into a, a blending tank because uh, you can't rack directly off of your whirlpool. Right, right. <laughs> um, or at least that would take forever. And then uh, right into barrels, and it ferments in the barrels. About six weeks later, we top off the barrels. And then, you know, we're typically starting to taste barrels at around... Uh, 15 months uh, to see if they're ready for for blending at all. Talk to me a little bit about your approach to blending. You know, this is one of the more difficult things for any brewer to articulate and put into words. Um, But at the same time, you know, having some language about how to describe this process helps other people think about it. Um, You know, there is that, you know, that kind of taste to, to language connection that can be hard to accomplish but as you are tasting through you know barrels and this kind of raw product that uh, that's coming out of those barrels and thinking about how to construct a blend kind of walk me through that thought process it starts with a goal right there's there has to be some form of goal you can't just go into a blending session and say let's see what tastes good because you'll be there forever and you'll argue and it's very difficult to yeah. figure it out um I think that for us, oftentimes that vision is like, okay, we we want to use this particular. We're going to fruit this this uh, this uh, blend, or we want to use these herbs and spices, or this is going to be an unfruited blend that we want to kind of be in this vein that we want to be more farmhousey or more yeah. barrel forward. So that's something that starts as a conversation between myself and our barrel program manager Dan Hines. We kind of create a vision for it and he then you know is kind of the the barrel meister right will typically go and choose barrels you know samples from barrels that he thinks might fit that bill yeah and it's a mix of a few things there's a little bit of strategy right he's looking at stuff that knowing the age of it he's might be trying to pull in some stuff that he's hoping we can work with (laughs) and then other stuff that might be based on previous sensory notes we track that over time that might fit the bill for these types of beers. So we want, you know, let's say we know that we want to do a farmhouse blend, but we want medium high acidity. So he might go and track down barrels that have been tagged as that in the past that haven't made it into previous blends, or barrels that were enjoyed for that very reason and selected in the past and then have been refilled and re-aged. So it's like, okay, oh, gotcha. this barrel last time produced this set of characteristics. It's got a good pedigree. Yeah. So yeah. Um, so that's kind of what comes to the table. Okay. A lot of it is uh, this kind of decision-making process that leads us even to the blending session. And then from there, it's kind of just working through in uh, kind of cohorts. We'll say, okay, these six casts that Dan selected were all from 
the, a fill in November of 2017. Let's taste these. How uniform are they? Are there any that have obvious THP or other defects? Are there ones that seem too young or immature? And a lot of that then now is evolved based on how we know our beers develop and how our flavors develop over time. Um, and then from there, we start picking and choosing and kind of, you know, we, we'll taste for everything. We'll identify the barrels that have been brought to the table that, again, the most pleasant to the most people and start playing with a blend together to see if we can come up with something that um, honors the best characteristics of each of those barrels. Yeah. While also being unique. You know, that's it's, it's an interesting thing when you start playing in this style of beer because there are historical expectations and there are... Uh, you know European examples that everyone looks to and that will ultimately always compare your beer to uh, at the same time as a, a, a maker of these kinds of things you also want to kind of chart a territory that's not necessarily exactly what somebody else does um, you know for you how do you define that kind of breakside approach to sour beer I think the the goal is definitely to emulate some Lambic-like characteristics. Right. I mean, those are beers that I have always held in incredibly high regard. Sure, sure. Um, and traveled to Belgium, you know, several times and visited those breweries and and just super impressed by the flavor profile that they have, as well as some of the American, you know, uh, versions of them, particularly you know from Beechwood or from Crooked Stave that I think, or Allagash, yeah, are really the three that in my mind who hit the mark for emulating that classic lambic-like flavor profile um, and trying to tech, take cues from a lot of those producers about how to uh, pursue that. Um, that said, yeah, you know, we're really trying to just create interesting beers every time and to keep our customers coming back to the next one. Because I don't think, you know, these are not the beers that keep the lights on for breaks. <laughs> sure, sure. And I'm very grateful for that because I think what that allows us to do is we're we're using, we're really peddling these to our current consumers. Yeah. You know, these are people who come into our pubs to drink our IPAs, our lagers, and some of them love sour beers as well. And yeah. so we're able to use our brand equity with them. They're trusting us as a producer to sell them these beers that they might not otherwise be willing to try or would not necessarily kind of give a second pass in the grocery store. Um, and because of that, you know, we don't have to have a easily identifiable agenda or identity with them right um and kind of balancing uh, you know when i taste these the there's a light funk to it and mm -hmm. a light acidity these both they, they seem balanced definitely towards that lighter side of of both of these things yeah. and you know obviously we use balance as this kind of catch-all term and everyone has their own definition of what balance is but you know balance can happen at a lot of different uh, you know pegs along the you know the rung there and you've got this one definitely on the lighter side of of kind of you know that funk or, and and bready and barnyardy thing but also that lighter side of acidity with a little bit of malt character to it um you know talk to me about i mean when you start talking about that lambic tradition they definitely tend to you know hit it higher on that kind of bready funk um you know kind of uh minerally yeah. you know cheat you know cheesy kind of uh you know approach and this is this is definitely a, a subtler uh, yeah you know, kind of foray think, into that but i think it again it's a style that i think people sometimes talk as though it's monolithic and in reality there's yeah. a lot of difference you know the Cantillon beers are quite different from Drifontine and are different from the Jardin and like you know the level of funk the level of acidity sure. lactic to acetic level of hop character um, they're really 
kind of all over the place uh, in turn you know they're not you know within within a narrow spectrum they're pretty different um, and so yeah I would agree that these are like kind of on that moderate acidity moderate funk level uh, for sure but that's kind of what again it's what people sure. on our panels have consistently found the most pleasant I, I think I'd be fascinated to, to throw this into um a uh, you know kind of blind tasting with some more interesting white wine because I think it's probably in that uh, similar kind of you know character to it some light funky notes but also some that kind of Venice character to it uh, and it definitely um, is is within that kind of taste realm for sure yeah well that interesting you mentioned that because we have golden cluster here which is that same so you had body electric which is non fruited beer this is now golden cluster which is done with thirty five percent. Uh, Riesling juice. Okay. Um, actually, from Goshi Farms. You know, who knew that they also, not only <laughs> Your hop farmers yeah, are also, hop, also, also, also have a vineyard. Um, One stop shop. Yeah. And so this is, I mean, really goes for the kind of Venice and wine like characteristics. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, we also downstairs, we did a beer with uh, Matt Van Wyke from Ale Song uh, a few weeks ago as part of this 10th anniversary series that we're doing. And the beers we're going to call it kind of like orange wine that's yeah. what we ended up uh, <laughs> going with because it is kind of that like it's light and approachable and easy and yeah. spritzy but it's also got some funk to it but right you know i think as a lot of producers of these types of beers recognize there's a lot of these words that we've used as benchmarks internally in the industry that really are kind of gross to a lot of consumers <laughs> sure you know? sure I think about that every time I use like sweaty, uh, uh, you know, as a description, you know, because to me that's endearing, you know, and I, I get it in a, any you know, hoppy beer that kind of pushes that kind of guava papaya kind of character. And, and I enjoy it because it adds this kind of dirty funk to something that, that is messy and, and interesting. Um, but I can imagine that a normal consumer hearing sweaty or, you know, sweaty pineapple as a, descri a descriptor may not be as endearing to them as it is to some of us in the world. I think that any any brewer who's tasked with kind of doing some level of uh, marketing, right, you know, in their job or creative direction for a brewery in their job should spend some time bartending because yeah, you yeah. learn those lessons really quickly. You know, that certain words are just big turnoffs. Right, I mean, right. We stopped using the word farmhouse long before people stopped using the word farmhouse because we just yeah. realized every time we said that word to a consumer and this is when i used to bartend yeah and when our uh then r&d brewery used to bartend people it was just like they were off like that was instantly yeah. you lost them um huh. and you know maybe in a different place in different times it would be it would be more effective but for us that was just in, it was a really eye-opening moment and there's a lot of those words sweaty is certainly one of them right, uh, onion right. onion allium you know any of those kind of savory hop notes or right. we try and do everything we can to scrub them for the way we talk to customers, even if we use them internally because they're meaningful for the kind of common vernacular of brewers. Right, right. You know, for a brewer, that pr provides some balance to some other character here, and it, and it creates this thing that makes sense for a consumer, you know, selling it is a whole different matter. Right. Yeah. Um, in a general sense, what's on the horizon for uh, for Breakside? What, uh, what are you looking forward to over the next year or two? Well... I think that for us, the this year is really exciting as far as uh, collaborations go. We're doing 26 collaborations to celebrate our 10th anniversary, uh, 13 with breweries in-state, 13 out-of-state. All the out-of-state ones are going to package. Uh, all the in-state ones are draft only. So over the course of the year, it's probably going to be close to 
you know, it's not a huge part of what we do, but it'll probably be 2,500 barrels uh, of wow. these collaboration beers coming out of production. So we're all we're bringing them all here at yeah. the Slabtown Pub initially and then scaling them up. So the first one, we did one with uh, Cloudburst Brewing up in Seattle and then Fremont. We have that on the table here, too. Uh, those are two of the first out-of-state ones. Uh, we have one with a rare barrel that's coming up that's actually on tap here right now, but that has been brewed down in production. And then in-state, we started with a beer with Sun River and then with Freem and then one with Ale Song. And we have collaborations with Barley Browns and uh, Upright coming up, up next and a bunch of other of our really close friends in the industry. So that's really fun. I mean, for me, all of my to justify it to the your your partners and the CFO oh, and to say, hey, yeah. we're, this is going to be good for business to go hang out and brew a bunch of collaborations with our friends. It wasn't. Um, it was not a hard sell. I'll, yeah, it was, <laughs> that that was pretty. It was a pretty easy way to, to yeah, yeah. celebrate. But yeah, you know, effectively, I'd say that almost all of my creative energy is is oriented toward that in the um, year ahead. Yeah. So that's pretty exciting. Um, as a company, you know, we went, uh, we're now employee owned. Uh, so we did an ESOP last year, uh, which is really fun for, I think, our entire team. I think it's building a lot of um, loyalty and hopefully we'll keep people for a long, long time. But, you know, we're trying to continue to navigate the waters of a challenging industry right now where mid sized breweries, uh, especially breweries who are larger than us, are struggling. And, I'm kind of a, a rah-rah champion of the mid-sized brewery. I think that we're, you know, I, I fear the retreat to tap rooms. I fear that we are giving up, that there's, we as an industry are too easily giving up shelf space that's been hard fought over the last 10 years. And, um, you know, I think that mid-sized breweries, especially those that are committed to quality, can provide people with careers. They can provide, provide people with a lot of benefits and pay better. Um, I think that they're the breweries that in the next 10 years can push forward advancements in research and quality as some legacy breweries uh, stumble a little bit. So I think that's a lot harder to do when you are a very smaller taproom brewery. And I love those brewers and love those breweries, but I'm also a staunch defender of the of, of breweries like us who want to um, continue to engage in the, the, the fight in the retail sector, you know? I think you know you have some that there is certainly a point there that uh, with that scale comes some you know ability to move the broader craft market forward and to contribute back to it, um, which you all certainly do. Well, and I, I, I'll, I'll just continuing on that thought. Yeah. I mean, I agree. I think that it's important. You know, if if, if like we make a draft logger every yeah. month, it's not Pilsner, right? We've got. Uh, we did Dunkel in in December. Yeah. We've got Darkness Comes, which is our dark check logger out right now. We just released a Meritzen, which I know it's not supposed to be in March, but we released it in March because I like drinking them in March. And uh, we do a lot of other draft ones. And, you know, I recognize that when we put 60 barrels of Meritzen out into the trade, that's 60 barrels that's not going through our pubs. That's out yeah. in kegs, two bars, that we're trading a little bit. We're asking for a little bit of withdrawal. We're taking withdrawal from our customers and taking, asking them to trust us a little bit. But I think that's how you have to move the needle. You have to have breweries who have kind of the brand equity be willing to spend a little bit of that to push the needle with consumers to see if things work. And they don't always work. But if no one's doing that and we're just giving people more IPA and more IPA every single time, you know, I don't know. That's a le- It may be better business, but to me that's a lot less interesting. And I don't know that it's good business over the long haul. I think that's the good point. Like it may be goodness, good business right now. If your horizon is the next three months or the next six months, is it a good business? If your horizon is the next five years, or the next ten years, 
you know, and is there this kind of base of classic beer styles that should continue to exist, the breweries should continue to make and should continue to educate customers about, you know, you can, from a brewery perspective, you can say, well, customers need to be better educated and they need to, you know, understand this. But I mean, let's be honest, the major points of education, as much as we do what we do here at Craft Beer and Brewing and help try to you know, push that education agenda, most people that are drinking beer are being educated by the places that they're drinking beer at. Absolutely. And those breweries are the ones that are doing that kind of educating, um, you know, in the, the bigger picture in aggregate, you know, when it's expanded over that. And so um, you know, there is, you know, I, I think it's interesting that you feel some responsibility towards that education process and making some of these things and familiarizing people with those. Yeah, it's uh, I feel like we've been very fortunate in the last 10 years to grow the size that we are. And we have a really awesome platform in our pubs, but also through our distribution network. And I think, you know, I want to um, use that to try and push for some, you know, push beers forward that we wouldn't maybe wouldn't have risked five, ten years or five or six yeah. years ago, yeah. you know. Um, and again, you know, I recognize it still has to be you, you can't go too far. Right. I'm not we're not about to send out like I mean, last year, this was actually we screwed up. I mean, I sent like it was only 30 barrels, maybe it was 60 barrels of like a buckwheat Schwartz beer on like that hit the market like <laughs> March 15th. And yeah. it just sat. It uh. sat and sat. But, you know, that was probably a misfire. And we've had yeah. a few other ones. But in general, you know, I think that if you're making, if you're a high quality, if you can produce these beers at a, you know, high quality, and I would certainly never put us in the league of, you know, elite lager producing breweries in this country, but we make a lot of lager. And I yeah. think we do a, uh, you know, like a, a, a solid job on a lot of these beers. And um, I think we're doing a, a good introductory Vienna lager, a good int- introductory right. version, you know, um, of a dark Czech lager. And right. that hopefully people res- enjoy that, recognize it, and then they're willing to try one again sometime in the future. Yeah. So what does success look like for Breakside Brewery? Will you, what, when will you know that you've achieved it, or do you feel like you have? That's a very difficult question. Um, I'm kind of... That's why I left it for yeah. the last one. <laughs> I'm a little, you know, I'm, I'm uh, always a, kind of a tinkerer and, and a little restless. I think that for us, though, as a, as a company, it's defined by sustainability is, uh, you know, like uh, in perpetuity and... Uh, quality of life for our employees. You know, our our motto is you know, seek and enjoy. Our number one core value here is for our st- internally is enjoy life at work and while you're away. And so to be able to provide for our employees in a way that um, allows for that, yeah. you know, both the work and the enjoyment and the being away from work, I think is kind of our goal and to be able to continue to do that at whatever size. Um, is really important for us. Beyond that, I think it's defined a lot by making sure that we're running a successful business. And of course, you know, we try and we want to contribute at the forefront of kind of beer quality and innovation. And I think it's something a lot of breweries of our size like to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's the grown-up answer, right? That uh, it's funny how you you know at first it's I want to win some awards and and feel the validation, and then as you get further into this, it's. I want to be a good business person and I want to treat our, our employees right and I want to treat our customers right and higher sales come because we're, we're creating compelling products for our customers and that's the validation that ultimately matters. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 
Well, Ben Edmonds, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. This week. Yeah. Uh, if people want to learn more about Breakside, where do they find you? Uh, they can go to Breakside.com. You can follow us on Instagram also as at Breakside Brews, which is also our Twitter, Twitter handle. Um, so all three. Cool, cool. Uh, G&D Chillers is big enough to produce and small enough to care. Old Orchard invites you to step up your fruit game. SS Brewtech is advancing brewing equipment, design, performance, and quality. And Captain Pabst Seabird IPA is now available exclusively in Wisconsin and Chicago. If you've enjoyed our conversation and enjoyed listening to this podcast, please go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, and become a subscriber to the magazine. Ben Edmonds, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been such a pleasure. Thanks thanks for having me. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine. For those that love to make and drink great beer, learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.com.